So, as it says on the signs outside, I am going to talk about yoga and Unitarian Universalism today. But, the sermon I'm about to give isn't the same one that I wrote two weeks ago. That sermon was a lighthearted take on the difficult subject of cultural appropriation using yoga as a key example. It was actually pretty funny, with uh, lots of snide comments about lycra and women. But then Alton Sterling was killed. And then um, Galando Castile was killed. And then there was Dallas. And I realized I just don't have it in me to be light and funny today. Every other Friday, I teach a chair yoga class at the Shepherd's Clinic uh, for people who don't have health insurance. And the students include a core group of older black women who show up for every class fully committed to their practice. And this week after class, almost every one of them came up to give me a hug. I've never been hugged before after teaching a yoga class. Um, But these women were hurting. And the relief that they felt from having an hour and a half to sit in a safe place, focusing on their breath, gently moving their bodies to soft and soothing music, that relief was palpable. But when they went out the door, the thought came into my head, whose child will be killed today? Whose grandchild will be shot dead simply for being black in the wrong place? And will it be one of theirs? And so I can't give the lighthearted sermon that I'd intended, but I still want to talk to you today about cultural appropriation and yoga and and Unitarian Universalism because I believe it's important. And because in all transparency, I feel I don't have the words that could adequately speak to the heartbreak and the horrors of these times. So today I'd like to talk about something a little more subtle, but still insidious. Before digging into a discussion of cultural appropriation, though, it's worth asking just what this troublesome concept means. We might begin by clarifying what it is not. It's important to understand that cultural appropriation is not just borrowing from other cultures and traditions, which happens all the time. In her essay, Corn Rose, Kwanzaa, and Confusion, UU Minister Reverend Marjorie Bowens Wheatley defined cultural appropriation as a form of plagiarism. Quote, it is the superficial appreciation of a culture without regard to its deeper meaning. 
It is acting in ways that belie the understanding or respect for the historical, social, and spiritual context out of which particular traditions and cultural expressions were born." Unquote. Well, feminist author Bell Hooks, in a 1992 essay entitled Eating the Other, famously described cultural appropriation as a manifestation of commodity culture, where ethnicity becomes spice, seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture. Elsewhere, though, Hooks explains that the very act of appropriating in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It isn't necessarily synonymous with exploitation. Instead, she argues, it is the use one makes of what is appropriated that is the crucial factor. I'll say that again because it's important. It is the use one makes of what is appropriate that is the critical factor. So as an example, let's apply this concept to yoga. As teacher and writer Susanna Bakataki has pointed out, yoga has always borrowed from other sources. As a practice that dates back thousands of years, yoga has coexisted with and been influenced by Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, Islam, Western athleticism, and science. Some key elements of yoga as it's practiced today are fairly recent inventions, and certainly many of its greatest teachers have not been South Asians. But to acknowledge that yoga has a long history of borrowing and adaptation doesn't mean that that history doesn't matter that we can just treat this cultural phenomenon as though it is something that was invented for the purpose of building bikini bodies, as though it has no connection to deep and ancient spirituality that flowered in a particular place and with a particular people. And yet, this is exactly what has happened in this country. Not by all teachers and practitioners, certainly by no means, but it has happened. Just last year, Bikram Chowdhury, the creator of Bikram Hot Yoga, attempted to copyright a particular sequence of yoga poses. Now, thankfully, the court rejected his case, but the very idea that someone might try to claim credit for a series of yoga poses that had been in the public domain for thousands of years is indicative of a mindset that is all too willing to erase history and deny the debt of gratitude to those who have come before. The cultural appropriation is about more than claiming credit for what is not our own. It's also about picking and choosing the things we like from another culture with no attempt to understand what those things mean within the originating culture, and then recontextualizing them so that the originating culture no longer has access to them. So think, for example, about a white designer who takes a pattern from a piece of Hopi pottery 
and makes it the central theme of his fall collection and then gives a title to that theme, Teepee. Well, of course, the Hopis have never lived in teepees. <laughs> that doesn't matter to the designer or to the people who purchase his products who are content to just lump together all, um, all First Nations people into some generic Indian. Where things get a little more complicated is when something is borrowed from another culture and then sliced up, edited, and manipulated in order to get rid of unfortunate elements that make the borrowing culture feel uncomfortable. For example, in the West, some have found it difficult to reconcile the physical and mental benefits of yoga with its non-Judeo-Christian spiritual source. And so it is that inventive people have created things like praise moves, which unyokes yoga from Indian spirituality, removes the Sanskrit, and takes a different Bible passage and links it to each pose. Or Pietra uh, Fitness, which uses traditional yoga poses, but proudly proclaims that it is not yoga. It's stretching, to which Catholic prayer and meditation have been added. Now, stripping yoga of its spiritual roots not only makes it safe, for some conservative Christians, it also makes it infinitely malleable, allowing for the creation of things like spinning yoga and paddleboard yoga and boxing yoga. <laughs> Don't get me started on doggy yoga. <laughs> Not that I, you know, I would actually love to go to a yoga class, but I'm just saying. I first began to think about all of this in earnest when I was taking a yoga class at a trendy suburban studio. At one point, the teacher asked us to turn our warrior two poses toward the back wall and then to turn back to face Shiva. Now, in the front of the studio, there was a large statue of dancing Shiva, he's back here, which the teacher was using as a kind of directional sign. For a moment, I let my gaze rest on the statue, and the thought occurred to me, what would Shiva, the destroyer of worlds, the god of yogis, the first yogi, what would he think about this situation in which he is present, but almost no one knows who he is or why he's here? Do people just think that he's doing a pretty yoga pose? Or do they understand that his death represents, or his dance represents the destruction and rebirth of the universe, the cycles of birth, death, and rebirth? And does it matter? Well, this in turn reminded me of a story that I'd read not long before about a man who had opened a yoga studio in Toronto, Ontario. One day, an Indian man asked for directions to the bathroom, and when he came back wearing a polite but tired smile, he said to the studio owner in a quiet and shaken voice, You have Krishna hanging over the toilet. Krishna in the bathroom. Shiva in the secular studio. It's enough to make the person ask, just what exactly are we doing? And you may 
will be asking at this point, just what exactly does all this have to do with Unitarian Universalism? Well, this. We are at root of borrowing and adapting people. The six sources of our tradition include wisdom from the world's traditions, Jewish and Christian teachings, humanist teachings, and teachings from Earth-centered religion or traditions. We are, in effect, spiritual beachcombers. We dig through the sand that is the history of the world's religions and philosophies, and we extract the beautiful gems that fit with our own principles, and we cast away the detritus of ignorance and prejudice. And this is, after all, the progressive vision to keep what is good and to cast off those things that oppress us. But where we run into trouble is when we allow our polyphonic, sometimes discordant spiritual symphony to become spiritual music, dehistoricized and decontextualized when comfort trumps contrast and contradiction. Now, there is something to be said for spiritual comfort, for sanctuary, for rest. Sometimes that is all we need, and we need it desperately. But I would argue Unitarian Universalism, like yoga, is a practice. And as we progress in our faith, we ought to expect to take on greater and greater challenges, inviting increasing difficulty and discomfort. We might begin by seeing African-American spirituals participating in a Seder or celebrating the solstice, but we continue to practice and we move on to understanding the importance of Jesus to those enslaved and oppressed black people who sang those spirituals. We begin to appreciate the reality of Jehovah to those ancient Hebrews wandering in the desert, children of slaves and ancestors of exiles. We take to heart the earthly embodiment of the goddess for pagans and the terrible history of witch burning and forced conversion. We learn not just tolerance, but appreciation. And I don't mean to imply by the examples I've given here that it's the non-theists among us who need to do all the work. The theists, as well, can try to understand that our humanist hymns and teachings didn't just fall out of the sky. That breaking the bonds of superstition and dogmatism was no easy task. Gradually, and with practice, we learn to see the spiritual and cultural other not just as a spice for our souls, but as a full-fledged, authentic way of being. And what comes after this? What comes after this is action. Now, it's one thing to sing, Oh, I woke up this morning with my mind set on freedom. And it's another to stand with our black siblings and insist 
that black lives matter. It's one thing to celebrate the solstice every year and another to work and fight for the health of our Mother Earth. Again, it's the use one makes of what is appropriated that matters. Are we, and in this particular case, we means me, or meaning white folks, are we content to feel good about ourselves every time we sing a black spiritual in church? Are we ready to get to work dismantling this racist system of injustice? It's a good thing that our faith draws from so many sources and that our UU hymnals include black spirituals, Native American readings, and songs in Swahili and Spanish and Hindi. But if our faith is to have any meaning at all, we must be about more than spice. We must be that, like, that, like that yogi who comes back to the mat again and again, practicing and knowing that it's not about perfection. It's about the practice. So let us practice understanding of one another's unique histories. Let us practice empathy, appreciation, and justice. Let us practice a love that truly welcomes and celebrates difference. Let it be so.